Welcome back to the podcast. This is part two, looking at anxiety and leadership, leadership and anxiety. For Christian leaders who deal with whether it's minor, minimal anxiety every now and then, or severe anxiety and panic, I want to try to provide in the second half some really useful and practical management techniques. So there are eight, and they are interrelated, but they're also distinct, at least for the purposes of this podcast. Number one, most leaders that I know are pretty good procrastinators, which is counterintuitive. You would think leaders would be not procrastinators. But the more I get to know leaders, the more I realize that at least part of their job is something they would like to put off, and often we do. So is there something in your life that you put off because it just makes you anxious? A meeting, a conversation, a set of paperwork, disciplines that you need, whatever it is. And I hope it's not, if you're preaching, I hope it's not preaching that makes you anxious, but maybe it is, right? So number one, the most important thing you could do, and it's at the top of my list, is talk about your anxiety even if you don't know what it is attached to, right? That it's it's the hub and it's not attached to anything or event yet. It's just this feeling of uncomfortable. Just start talking. Leslie is a rock for me. Uh, we've been married 33 years and she is infinitely healthier and nicer uh, and, and more kind than I am. And one of the things I've had to learn as an anxious person is that when I'm fumbling around in the dark, one of the ways I can eliminate the anxiety or reduce it drastically is just by talking to my wife about feeling uneasy. And here's what typically happens. It's the same thing we do when we're talking to a therapist, is we go from vague to specific. We go from not focused to focused. We go from wordless to word-filled. As I talk about the thing that is troubling me, I can begin to get language around it. And here's what we know. The more language we have around anything, the less frustrated we are. Think about a two-year-old. One of the reasons that we call it the terrible twos is they get really frustrated when they can't communicate well because they have a little tiny toolbox of words that capture their feelings. And as language develops, tantrums reduce. Let me say it again. As language develops, tantrums reduce. Anxiety. As we approach anxiety and find words for it, the anxiety itself will go down. So just start talking with somebody safe. Now, I try to do the same thing for my wife when she's feeling overwhelmed about anything. She's a middle school teacher. God bless any middle school teachers that are listening or kindergarten teachers. You should have a whole separate realm in heaven. Uh, you should get extra mansions. Uh, you should be paid a lot more than anyone else in the world uh, because God bless you. right? So if she's anxious about work, I try to listen. I try to help her find words to put on whatever is frustrating or anxiety producing for her. So number one, just start talking about it. If you've never been to a therapist, that's their main job, is to listen and help you language out what's going on inside. Number two, management technique. Medicine. There are really safe 
and very efficacious medications that are designed for either temporary relief of anxiety or long-term relief or in combination for both. And if you're suffering from an anxiety and your heart and mind are going along at an eight out of 10 all the time and nothing else seems to be helping, please talk to your doctor. Get a referral to a psychiatrist to get your body and mind down into a manageable zone. Number three, to the degree that you feel safe, talk to your boss or your supervisor about your anxiety. You don't need to go into detail, but it's amazing how often just telling someone that's safe at work, excuse me, about our anxiety reduces the anxiety. I'll never forget a time I had a conversation with the dean of the college when I was a psychology faculty member. Hey man, I was anxious all the time because I was trying to complete my doctorate and teach a full um, load of courses and be a good dad to my young kids and a good husband to my very patient wife. And I went into Steve's office and I said, I need to confess to you, I am making myself sick worrying about the fact that nothing I'm doing is very good right now. And he listened to me for a while and he said, it sounds like you're doing okay, not great. But he said, you know, sometimes you have to give yourself permission to just do okay. And as he said it, I can remember still the feeling in my body of, of weight coming off my shoulders, not all the weight, but enough. As I realized that's true. Anxious people often tend to be overachievers and perfectionists, and, and we have to sometimes just say, what is realistic for me right now? If you're a mom of young kids and you got a bunch of little kids at home, uh, you got to give yourself permission to be tired and for the house to be messy and for your kids to be kids, right? If you're a pastor, you've got to give yourself permission that a couple of Sundays a year, uh, you're probably not going to hit it out of the park. And at least one Sunday a year, you will misspeak and upset some people and probably say something you didn't even mean to say. But that's life. We are human leaders. So talk about it. Manage it medically. Talk to your boss. Number four. Now, I rolled my eyes at this one for a long, long time until I started practicing it, and that is breathing techniques. So there's a very specific breathing technique. Well, actually, there are two. The one, uh, the, I won't describe one to you because it's so hard to do. It's, it makes me anxious thinking about it. Actually, that's fear, isn't it? It makes me fearful. I'm just going to talk to you about the box method of breathing. I find this an incredibly helpful tool when I'm alone, although you can do it uh, in a meeting, unless you're running the meeting, but it's called the box technique. Hold your breath. Long in. Hold your breath. Long out. It's a system of air in and air out with long holds between them. So if I'm trying to do it, I would breathe in. Five second hold and now I'm gonna let it out. Completely hold. And now breathe in again, right? So that, that box of inhale, exhale with holds between what happens when you do the box method is your heart rate will slow down, the autonomic activity, the electrical activity running around your brain and your body will slow down, and you'll feel better. And the more we concentrate on breathing, uh, 
the more relaxed we get. If you're able to combine breathing uh, with music, all the better. Uh, if, if you're not treating anxiety with worship or rock or pop, whatever you listen to that makes you happy, um, I have a mix. I have actually a couple of mixes in my playlists that are just good for stress, that just help me be more mellow. Number four is breathing. Number five is diet. I've already talked about caffeine, but let's just talk about diet in general. Am I putting things into my body that are good for me? Am I putting things in my body that are bad for me? What is my salt intake? Why salt? Because salt, excess salt leads to hypertension. Hypertension is a killer. So, you know, as a kid, when they had the food pyramid up on the wall in class, or we had health and we had to learn the food pyramid, uh, unfortunately, we have to relearn that as adults. I certainly have had to do that. Number six is exercise. Why isn't this the top of the list? Uh, it's my list. A lot of people that, that would prepare a, a talk or a podcast on this would put exercise in the first spot. And you can. You certainly can put it in the first spot. Why? Moderate exercise almost always brings about a significant reduction in anxiety and stress. Not zero, not marathon training, moderate exercise, 20 to 40 minutes a day, cardiovascular, a little bit of weightlifting, as many times a week as you can. Moderate exercise. I read an article one time when I was a college student and it was about depression and it was in the journal Discipleship, which was um, was the thing back then. And there was a journal called Discipleship and there was an article on melancholy and the author of the article said that when he was in grad school, never forget this, when he was in grad school, he went to a professor and confessed that he had been very depressed. And the professor at this seminary, I don't know what seminary it was, but the professor at the seminary said, I want, to, I want you to try something. I want you to read Ecclesiastes front to back and then go for a 45-minute walk every day. Let's get together in a month and let's see how it goes. And the author of the article said, I did it. I would read Ecclesiastes and I would go on a long walk every day. And he said, my melancholy virtually disappeared. The act of slowing down, meditating on God's word, I wouldn't choose Ecclesiastes necessarily, I might choose some Psalms. The act of slowing down, refocusing, recentering our attention on the Lord and the fact that the Lord never told us there was going to be perfect, harmonious happiness every day. But he did promise us that he would be with us. There's something very grounding and rooting about prayer, worship, and exercise when we combine them all. You can walk your way out of a lot of mental health issues by walking and listening to the scripture while you walk and talking with the person that you care about while you walk. Number six is exercise. Number seven is prayerful reflection on your wins, on your blessings, on your victories. First part of the prayer. First part of a prayer discipline for anxiety is to just celebrate my wins, my blessings, and my victories. The second part of the prayer journey is to empty-handedly release worries, fears, and tension. 
whether we think God will and can do anything about it or not. God limits his self and his power, right? He limited himself in several ways, but one, he chose to limit his power so that we would have free will. So we know that we're not always going to get bailed out, but God still wants us to cast our anxieties his way to cast our anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. It's just straight out of 1 Peter. So on the first half of my prayers, I focus on, Lord, recalling the victories, remembering joy, remembering your work in my life. And on the second hand, I confess worries and tension and fear. And the more I do these two things, the more grounded the more relieved, the more hopeful I begin to feel. Number eight out of eight um, is not last for any particular reason, but it will hit home with warriors and procrastinators and general uh, anxiety sufferers. And that is number eight, you got to eat the frog. Uh, that is a phrase we use a lot at my house. It's a weird phrase, unless you know the book. Is a very good, easy-to-read book called Eat the Frog. And it is a different way of thinking about how we manage our time. It's basically a book for procrastinators, helping them understand that if you want to feel less anxious, especially at work, then stop procrastinating. Right? It goes back to a saying, and I forget to whom it is attributed, but the saying is, if I knew every day I was going to have to eat a frog or two, I think I would learn to eat the frog at the start of the day rather than worry about it all day. And I had some leaders here at the university read Eat the Frog. And it's amazing, if you think about it, about reorienting your thinking about the difficult task. It's amazing that when you just do it, how the tension in your life will drop. So I want to be honest with you and confess how much I dislike, dislike, hates, hates, probably, you know, I strongly dislike putting up the outside Christmas lights at our house. I have no idea why. I don't know why. It takes between two and three hours to put up all the lights. Once they're up, they're beautiful. I don't, it's not like it takes two days. I, I cannot even describe why I hate it so much. Maybe it's because I'm afraid I'll put it all up and it won't work and I'll have a Christmas vacation moment or I'll put up and some won't work and I won't be able to figure out maybe it's I'm afraid of falling maybe I just don't like getting dusty it's probably all of those things and a bunch of other things that I don't even know about I just hate putting up the lights so much so we go to church on Saturdays I'm filming this on a Monday yesterday Sunday was the day I said to my wife um, uh, you know that's my promise every Thanksgiving that by Sunday I'll have the outside lights up I woke up yesterday morning and I started feeling tension around the stupid lights and I ignored it. And then I went downstairs to uh, line up some things to do and some TV to watch. And I started feeling anxious again. And all of a sudden I turned everything off and I thought, what, why, why am I uncomfortable? And I realized it was the stupid Christmas lights. So at that point, once I identified it, I thought I have two choices. I can uh, run away from the frog, which had been my plan to, to do the lights late, late, late 
late in the day. Or I can eat the frog and get up off the couch, get up off my backside and go put the lights on the house. So I thought, I'm gonna eat the frog and see what happens. As a test, knowing I was filming this today, I thought I'm gonna do a simple little test and check the frog, right? Check the frog theory. Well, I knew what was gonna happen and it did happen. When I went out and got all the lights out and checked them, <laughs> checked them all strand by strand, the 1.2 million strands, I don't know how many we have. It's a lot, it's a lot of strands. So I checked them all, I got all the equipment, got it all ready, set up a table for the first time to put them all out on, that was helpful. It took less than three hours. And my anxiety by the end was down to a one instead of a seven, eight, nine, which it was bouncing around in the seven and eight before I did the task. And it was down to a one when I was done, partly because I was physically tired. And I, I'm happy about that because I wanted to be able to say today, give you an, a very current example of eating the frog in my life. I had a report I had to do a couple of months ago and I put it off for a while and I thought, forget that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start tomorrow eating the frog and do a report I don't like writing. And it works, it just works. So eat, it's either eat the frog or eat that frog. I recommend that book. So now I want to get into typical irrational beliefs of leaders. And now we're getting in down into some of the real meat of this talk. It's been my experience that leaders, very effective leaders even, often share some really anxiety-filled, fearful thoughts around our leadership. And the number one fear and anxiety driving thought that we rarely confess to is that my organization is going to fail with me at the helm. I cannot tell you how many leaders I've talked to, college presidents, pastors, business owners, moms and dads, who their biggest irrational fear is that they will fail utterly and completely. And a subset of that will be, and it will all be my fault that I'm going to drive the organization into the ground and it will be my fault. And just as bad, everyone will know it's my fault and they will blame me. Followed by, and then I'll be humiliated. I'll never be able to work again. And now I'm gonna be that guy that's the butt of a joke or a story or the one that gets talked about. Now, one thing I, I hope you saw in that short little list was how extraordinarily extreme and polarizing this kind of thinking is. There's no gray. It is black and white, right? It is red and green, and the red thoughts are deep red, and the green lights are nowhere to be found. It is a very catastrophic way of thinking in absolutes. That style of thinking is very common with anxiety and depression, the tendency to think too widely and in too polarizing a fashion about anything, about everything. Expectations for our spouse, for our kids, for ourselves. We need to leave room in the middle to realize that as a leader, we, I, will small f fail sometimes. And you are going to small f fail sometimes. But it is unlikely that you're going to capital F-A-I-L. And if it's headed that way, there are things you can be doing about it so that you don't, capital F-A-I-L. You guys, Satan uses this weapon all the time, this, this very almost toddler-like, 
very young childlike oversimplification of the world into complete success and complete failure. Rarely do we have either. Fact is, as leaders, some days are better than others, some years are better than others, some quarters are better than others. And I know post-COVID, a lot of organizations have redrawn their metrics around what does complete success or complete failure look like. But I want you to challenge you and think about your own thinking, right? That's a gift we have, metacognition. I can back up and think about my thinking. I know my dog can't do that. At least I don't think my dog can do that. That's a weird thought. I know we can do that. We can think about our thinking and, and it requires you to step back and say, what am I saying to myself about ultimate failure and success and what are my expectations for myself number two this is a common one and this is actually a very subtle symptom for OCD um, so that may surprise you but a lot of leaders have an irrational fear and anxiety around the idea that they could say or do something outrageously terrible or outrageously embarrassing I had a speaker confide in me one time, a well-known speaker confide in me one time that he was always afraid he was gonna drop the word accidentally. And I said, that is so weird because when I was 25 or six, I was getting ready to get up and speak at a camp and a friend leaned over and said, hey, no matter what you do, don't say now. Totally, uh, totally inappropriate. But it's, it planted in my, idea, in my brain the idea that maybe that could happen. Maybe for whatever reason, right? So it's this idea that not only would I fail, but maybe I'm gonna do something and just humiliate myself and it'll be on social media. And then I know somebody will have the camera on. I know I'm gonna get triggered somehow and I'm gonna, I'm gonna fill in the blank. The next irrational fear is that people won't like me won't approve of me or won't compliment me. And that goes back to our unrealistic expectations for people around us and our own narcissism that we think in order to feel happy, people have to constantly be giving me positive feedback. I think that's a temptation for so many gifted leaders is that we think we should perform at a high level so that we can keep the compliments coming in. And when the compliments don't come in as often or stop for a while, we get very, very, very anxious. I have had leaders go to their elders or board or managers and say, it's like, think of it like another kind of poker chip. You can't do this very often, but you can, if you need to, go and say, here's my chip. Internally, I'm thinking, here's my chip. I'm gonna play this one every couple of years. I'm not gonna play this every month. But it is okay to say in your organization, I was wondering if you could get me some feedback. I'm a, I'm a little discouraged or stressed right now. Now, if you think you're about to get fired, don't play that poker chip. But if you're just a little down and feel like you haven't got much positive feedback lately and you know you're doing a pretty good job, then play that poker chip. Because it's okay to ask for some positive reinforcement sometimes. Another irrational fear that leaders have is that we believe people are talking about us behind our backs or that they're about to talk about us behind our backs, maybe for good reason, maybe for no reason. I mentioned in a previous podcast that I know on any given day here um, with my 120-ish employees, there are gonna be several, any day, every day, there are gonna be several people who are probably not very happy with the decision that I've made. 
and that's just life and I cannot stay up at night worrying about that the next irrational fear is that we will move from an in group to an out group and this is not just a fear sometimes this happens for us when we are leading we're leading up through an organization or sometimes we're leading down through an organization it is a common fear that we're going to be excluded from fill in the blank the committee the council the dinner group the lunch group the executive conference room group it's different in any setting every setting but one of our fears is that we will go from the center of relevance to an outer ring of relevance. And everything we know about in-group and out-group and leader-member exchange, I think I referred to it erroneously as exchange theory, but leader-member exchange, is that if we go from an in-group to an out-group, tremendous increase in anxiety and loss of self-esteem and, and loss of self-confidence. So I know a lot of us are always trying to make sure we're in on everything. I want to be part of every important conversation. I want to be a part of everything germane to my area and anyone else's area, right? That, that we have this unrealistic idea that we can be at the center of everything all the time. So something to think about. Um, how much time do you spend on that? And are there things that you can do to move you closer into the group of influence? Can you do some extra work? Can you do above and beyond? Can you talk to somebody safe about your feelings about it? Number six mistake, and, and almost every leader that I deal with has at one point or another had this irrational belief, and it is this. If my family isn't perfect, then I'm not a very credible leader. I don't care what organization we're talking about, but the more visible, the more prominent, and the more Christian, <laughs> Uh, the more common this belief is and it makes people anxious and fearful if one or more of their kids are deconstructing in their faith or have gotten arrested or pregnant or have given up their faith if someone in the, the systems that we're attached to has an affair if somebody has an angry outburst right it's this idea that everything in my family, my immediate and remote family, is an indication of my efficacy as a leader and is either a vote toward me staying or leaving. We get very irrational very quickly. If one of my kids or both of my kids do something that doesn't look good, that means I must be a bad leader, bad dad, bad father, bad mother, right? Fill in the blank. Here's the truth. Our kids are going to be our kids. They're gonna often do things we love. They're gonna sometimes do things we go, oh boy, a little bit of an eye roll. And occasionally our kids, our spouse, our parents, our siblings are gonna do something that's really, really awful. Uh, and, and it's not good. It's not good for them, it's not good for us. But I would ask you this question. Don't you deserve the same grace and latitude you probably would give another leader? I dealt with a Christian leader one time who was really, really upset with the things that his son was doing and not doing. And I said, well, if it were my son, 
would you give me grace? And, and he said, but without even thinking, he goes, well, of course. And he knew the goose was cooked, right? And, and I've had to do it as a dad and as a husband and as part of a family and as fill in the blank, right? My family isn't perfect. My work family isn't perfect. I'm not perfect. I can still be credible, even if the people that I love, care for, and I'm friends with do dumb stuff. Number seven, this common belief that if I mess up, I'll be fired instantly. And we play these scenarios in our head and we, we are not just anxious about it, we're actually fearful about it because it takes that shape, right? It's identified to a thing or an object or an occurrence. And it's this belief that just fuels a lot of ongoing anxiety. Number eight, I would call number eight a less than fully conscious thought. But I do believe it is a common source of our anxiety as leaders. And it is this irrational belief that everything I do must be flawless. Everything I do must be flawless. Above reproach. Perfect. 10 out of 10. Nobody can hang anything on me. And that's crazy making. And yet, we believe it. We buy into it. That I've got to be... A hundred percent, all the time, all green lights, all the time. Now, let me go back to a statement I made earlier about avoidance and procrastination. And again, I just want to highlight it because I believe one, one of the things that I hope you hear, one of the most important things I hope you hear in this podcast relates to avoidance. And knowing that there are things in our life that we need to address, whether it's personal, a, a, a sin habit, an attitude habit, an emotional mismanagement habit, communication mistakes I'm making, time management mistakes, whatever it is, avoiding the problem is the enemy. And deer in the headlights is our foe. Because if we're frozen, we're no good to anyone. We're no good to ourselves. We're no good to our to others, people we care about. We need to take action. We need to do some things. So I want to put together now some tried and true anxiety management techniques. Understanding that I'm about to write you a three by five card, potentially, I'm gonna run through all these and you're gonna go, thanks a lot, Dennis, right? Thanks for minimizing what I'm going through and putting just into some basic techniques. I can't help the fact that I'm I am going to give you some simple things, and you could put them on a card, but I believe them to be true and real and helpful. First thing I want you to do is, is in writing somewhere, write this down. Here are things I can do to take more control of my life. Number one, start a journal, and at the top, write, what are some things I can do to take more control of my life? I can't run a marathon but I can walk around a track. I can walk a quarter mile. And maybe in four months, I can run a mile. But I can't do anything until I go to the track. What are some things I can do right now? What are some little frogs I can eat right now? How do I identify them and then how do I do them? Once you identify them, do something related to that list every day. About half of PhD students in the country never get past the all but dissertation phase. 
so common that it's called ABD, all but dissertation. And about half of people who make it all the way through courses and comprehensive exams and, and all the qualifying hoops um, and hurdles cannot get their dissertation done. And one of the studies that I found really interesting is that one of the most effective things you can do to finish your doctorate is to do one, at least one little thing every day on your dissertation. I had a friend get stuck in her PhD um, for a few years, and she read a book on managing, remanaging, and reimagining your dissertation, and that was top of the list in most every study, was stay close to it, do one little thing a day, just one little thing, chip away, chip away, chip away. So I can do something today and I can do something every day. As we do this, as we think about what are the steps, what are the things I can do, what are the things I can't do, but I'm going to commit to working on this daily. We find anxiety tends to go down, self-confidence tends to go up, wins, birth wins, birth confidence, birth self-esteem, and it is an upward spiral instead of a downward spiral. Now. Number one fear in America is public speaking, followed by fear of death, which means people would rather die. You've heard this line before. People would rather die than give a speech. So one of the things I've done for a long time is helped college students be better at speaking. And one of the tips I have for them and their, their fear, it's a phobia actually, their phobia around public speaking, is to reframe their feelings as not fear, but as excitement that they get to share what they know about fill in the blank. So after the students laugh, because it doesn't sound helpful at all, it even actually sounds ridiculous, I try to explain that there's actually some research behind this, that we can, we are so, we are such knuckleheads that we can actually trick our brain, right? We can smile and our brain thinks we're happy. We can tell ourselves that we're excited and we will start to feel less awful and more hopeful. Now, we're gonna have butterflies either way right? Most of you listening um, don't love to do public speaking, and that terrifies you. I've done it so many years now, it just, it, it doesn't affect me anymore. But, man, in the beginning it did. So what I tell my students is, look, you've done research on whatever your subject is. You, you know more about this today than anyone in the room, and you probably know more about this particular thing than I do. So why don't you try telling yourself you're excited to share what you know because you know more than all of us. Now, how many students did that work on? I would say percentage-wise, eh, 15%. But when it works, it really works. And it's kind of a cool technique. Next thing I want you to do is to ask this question. Again, you probably want to journal this, but it's this question. What is God trying to say to me right now about control, about lordship, about fear, and about worry? Followed by this question, how would he like me to feel instead, knowing that he is my Abba? How does my dad want me to feel? How does my Abba father want me to feel? And I know, sorry, but I, I know Abba father does not want me to feel afraid and stressed and fearful and terrified and paralyzed and upset any more than I want my kids to feel any of those things. 
And just saying this now, in front of a camera, brings about a change of heart. Because as I say it, I realize he is here, and he is now, and he is close. And he wants me to feel that, not this. What does God want me to feel? The last bit of advice I have for you in terms of management or technique is to find a single scripture that is your go-to rock. And for me, it has been the rediscovery of a verse that I loved when I was a little boy. And I've rediscovered it the last five years in the presidency, especially when COVID hit right after I became president. And I was overwhelmed with stress and anxiety and fear about what in the world are we going to do. And I rediscovered Proverbs 3, 5 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And what happened for me is that I realized this this is a guarantee that God will not only watch me on the path, but if for the first time in my life, I'm visual, most of us are visual. For the first time in my life, I, I pictured God with some kind of eternally powered tractor that he's driving, that he can take a curvy road and he can turn on his engine and he can make that path go from curved to straight. I don't have to know how the tractor works. I don't know what fuel it needs. I don't know how God does it. But I know that he tells me that when I lean in and rest and trust with all my heart and stop trying to figure this all out, that my path gets straight. And here's what I have found as president five years in. When I trust the Lord with all my heart, things here get better. Things at home with my marriage and my kids walking through grief, losing mom and dad, walking through other family members further out on the tree that I'm worried. Whenever I can lean in and choose to trust, things get better. Now, do they get better or do they feel better? Yes, usually both. Usually things get better and certainly my perspective gets better. So I'm going to close with prayer for you. Uh, if you're driving and listening, don't close your eyes. I think the lawyer said I had to say that. But uh, let, let me close in prayer. God, help my friends um, know, feel, believe, and own the fact that we're not supposed to live our lives with anxiety and fear and panic. It's not how you designed us to be. And I know with all my heart it's not where you want us to live. Rather, Lord, I know you want us to live in a place of peace and calm and joy. So, Lord, I pray specifically for people that they would find ways to give over more control to you and to take the backpack off and just hand it over to you. Now, Lord, I I know I'm going to have to have a little knapsack, but help me to realize I don't need a, I don't need a giant backpack filled with rocks and gravel and tasks, fears. But that I, I have a real little knapsack that 
there are things in there I need to get done. There are things in there I need to pay attention to. But Lord, help us to hand over that giant backpack to you. God, help us to know that you want us to feel like any good dad or mom would want a child to feel, that you want us to feel loved, connected, safe, secure, reassured, confident, efficacious, loved. So I pray for peace and calm and a reduction in stress and anxiety. Help us to remember the things you've done for us and with us and to us. Forgive us for trying to be in control of everything all the time. Lord, if people are afraid to go to their doctor and talk about this or a Christian counselor, I pray for courage uh, that they would take those steps. We love you. We thank you. And Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.